How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideship Podcast, episode 209. Welcome back, Zeke. Welcome back. We got renewed. We got renewed for a fifth season. I know. We're we're back after a break. We took a a seven-day break, Zeke. Yeah, wow. I know, look at us. That's a bit bit hectic, isn't it? I know. I mean, no one will notice. No. (laughs) It just seems like every other seven-day break, but... Absolutely. It's okay. Yeah, of course. I mean, this is one of those... uh, we're entering the prime years of our, if we were a TV show. Mm. Many would argue most, what, season fours and season fives are kind of where the peak of a show are. Yeah, you know, I mean, we had the conversation very recently. I, I think you're right. Yeah. I think I think we're definitely peaking. Well, we're always just climbing. Peaking, peaking. Yeah. Always going up, forward. There you go. Never backwards or sideways. Well, um, can't say we've even planned any new additions to our show, so we're going to keep rolling with the same theme for the next season. <laughs> Nothing new, because clearly everyone likes it. Yeah, it's popular. Don't don't if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, which is something I'm going to say about something I saw in the past week. But before we get anywhere near that, Zeke, we got we got a while to go. Yes, we do, yeah. and we normally kick off our show with a fun trivia fact from the film of the week, mm. which is Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, Jake. Have we got a fact from the film of the week? I do. Well, it's probably more a fact about Mr. Spielberg himself. Spielberg. But it does tie into the film, The Fablemans. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's obviously a very personal film for him. And the name, Fablemans, it's a very clear ode to this idea of fables being stories. So it's very clear. But, and I never knew this, the name Spielberg has a very similar connotation. I didn't realise this. The name Spill if you look it up, is described as an elaborate or glib speech or story. Hmm. So there you go, a little bit of both. You've also got the character Sammy, or Samuel, Sam, Sam, yeah, Samuel. That's, that mm-hmm. sounds correct. Which actually comes from Spielberg's grandfather, whose original Hebrew name was Samuel Spielberg, S-H-M-U-E-L. Oh, there so you go. A lot, a lot of name connotations there related to the film, which I like. Yes. I like quite a bit. Zeke. Do you, have, do you have any trivia for me? Oh, yes. Well, there is a lot of mm, trivia. Obviously, this film centers around the coming-of-age story around uh, an, an aspiring filmmaker. And, yes. Uh, the call to, call to action in this film is when Sammy watches The Greatest Show on Earth. Mm. Um, this film coincidentally falls on the 70th anniversary of that show, which uh, of, of The Greatest Show yep. on Earth, the film. So... Quite interesting that, you know, that's sort of... We're Stars gonna, aligned. Yeah, you know, and about a month ago we are talking about Scorsese's 80th birthday mm-hmm. and obviously this film is more a reflection on, on Spielberg's career and it's just a cool little nuance, I think. There's yeah. a lot of c- cool little nuances in this film. and Sprinkled throughout. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely a cultivation of, of Spielberg's career through mm. actors or uh, through, well, it's a completely new cast, but a lot of the crew... Is he, okay. is quite uh, common fixtures of, of at least contemporary Spielberg and some who have been around with him for nearly fifty years. So yeah, very, very exciting to talk about that on the second half of the show. Jake, obviously being mm. a twenty twenty two release, this film is not on the poster behind me. No, it's not. But Jake, <laughs> would you add this post? Uh, would you add this film? Would I add this you... poster to the film? <laughs> To the 1100 like a, films, like a face you in the would crowd pod, uh, yes. poster with the QR code. Great on poster. <laughs> I would say, and th- this is with the context of this film's semi autobiographical roots, with that in mind, yes, I would put it on the poster. Okay. I think 
for one of the the greatest directors of all time or one of the most renowned directors of all time throughout all the film history. Um, yeah, I think this is a very important story to tell mm-hmm. and I think it also is broad enough uh, to appeal to all sorts of different people who want to follow their dreams and are coming of age and are dealing with you know, interpersonal drama in the family. Mm. So th- there's a lot of stuff the film's working with, but I think that key aspect especially is why I think a lot of people, especially film fans, need to see this film for yeah. that context alone. Would you put it on your poster, Zeke? Yeah, I would. Mm. I would. I think um, it's very difficult with the just the array of films you could put on... Spielberg films you could put on a poster like that. <laughs> At least 10, 20. Yeah, and you, you uh, probably you probably wouldn't struggle to get 10 on there. And, you know, it. I think for the point that you've raised, that is, it's probably its most proprietary reason why you'd watch it. Mm. Um, I think it's a really, it's a really strong family drama and a coming-of-age story on top of that. But yep. um, I think its biggest selling point is its biographical nature on the person that the film's based off, which is obviously Mr. Spielberg himself. So mm. I think that's a very important story to be told. And it doesn't ever feel like it's self-aggrandizing or or gloating, um, which yeah. I feel, or even um, trying to garner sympathy for... Uh, our protagonist, which is a a person in real life, which I do mm. think biopics can suffer and right. have suffered for in the past. But they feel too interpersonal, or woe is me. <laughs> yeah, or they feel like too too artificial, too right. uh, too tampered with. Mm. I, it was my big one of my biggest peeves with mu- particularly musical biopics is how a lot of musicians go one of two extremes. They either go incredibly uh, nitpicky and, and want to make their image look as, as puerile squeaky as possible, clean, squeaky yeah. clean, or or they want to always be victimised, which is just not the case all the time. So I think this film was a really good angle to yep. take, um, and I think it's an important story to cover. But before Beautiful. we talk a little bit more about that in the second half of the show, Jake, mm-hmm. what have you caught in the last week? Um, not much. I've obviously been very busy with the film coming up. We can talk a bit about more of that in a minute in the career updates. Uh, but I, I caught a couple of little things. I mean, i got to give a shout-out. Me and Kirsty, first, her first time, of course, watching Breaking Bad. We finished it oh. a couple of days ago. It's all done. Yeah. Raced through the ending. I mean, of course, like, you know, once you get into that final season, she's, you, she's pretty just... much just begging me, like, can we watch more? Can we watch more? Can we watch more? Yeah. So. We got to that point, and I and I yeah, I think she was very satisfied with it. And I mean, she hates Walt, just vitriolic hate towards Walt. And the more you rewatch it, the more you just kind of sit back and you're like, yeah, he's a pretty horrible person, even by like the third season. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I'm kind of uh, not not that I want to dictate the way she views things, but I was like almost kind of proud of like. Yeah, you know, she didn't. I know there's a lot of hate for Skylar, for example, and I think that's another effect. The more you rewatch it, the more you realize, like, what is she meant to do in this scenario? I think the hate is really unjustified at times. So I think having her go through that that lens the first time watching it, and, yeah. and, and especially because you know she's 25 now. I first watched the show when I was what 16, and I think that that is a massive. That makes a huge, huge difference. difference. Yeah, I mean, I've often visited. 
I've visited, revisited sections. Unfortunately, Breaking Bad hasn't had that revisit, but mm. I can imagine if I watched it now. I mean, I always thought Walt was kind of a bad person, but he sure. was a teen, you know, a teenage boy. He's cool. He's an anti He's anti-hero. cool. Yeah. He's the anti. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and you actually find in the earlier seasons they sort of hide his malice under. Things like Scarlet, like the frustration of oh, the wife at home while the business is, or yeah, yeah, or yeah. Jesse doing something stupid. Like, yeah, there's always a justification. I mean, as much as Kirsty hated Walt from very, very early on the show, there were two moments where she was like, either that's really cool, or I totally get that. Was the Jane scene, and then the final uh, climax. Of course, people know what that is in the last episode. That yeah. big final moment. Um, there's think, still elements of coolness behind all of that. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, and you can actually sum up the show really in, in the first episode, which is probably why even retrospect... I mean, everyone loved the pilot at the time, but retrospectively, yeah. you can really... You can really capture how good... You can capture the whole essence of the show mm. in that first 75 minutes. Oh, my God, yeah. Um, and reality is that the show is sort of just showing what happens when someone who's just pushed and pushed and pushed around yeah. hits that breaking point and just mm. snaps. Um, and I think that's the 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 emph- I mean, the emphasis of the show is, is it's over two years, right? Like it's yes, over exactly and, two years, yeah. and it's sort of showing it's like a, a midlife <laughs> crisis going from <laughs> zero to a hundred, and yeah, um, all of the pieces for the show are in that first episode, and it's so. That's why it's such a masterful pilot, arguably yeah. the greatest pilot of all time. Because yeah, absolutely, you can take the five seasons and just mush them in seventy-five minutes, and essentially you're watching the show in that first seventy-five minutes. Mm. Because the formula stays relatively well to an extent the same. It's just a different sort of antagonist. Yeah, uh, the, the the boss gets bigger, sort of situation. <laughs> well, they're, they're even um, in that first episode, they establish sort of the, this cyclical uh, cycle or structure that occurs over and over again, this idea of how characters get out of jams. Yeah. And there's a great video. I think it was a video talking specifically about the pilot episode. I could be wrong on that for Breaking Bad. But it talks about this idea of them being arisen with a problem mm. and them spending time you know, figuring out solutions to that problem yeah. and then coming to a conclusion that is ultimately true... Um, you know, it, it's not moral for, in terms of their moral standard. It's it's too much of a like we can't do that. And in the early show, it's whether we kill anyone, and it's like oh that you know I can't even think of doing that. That's awful. But then because of the pressure cooker that's brought in, they have to deal with a sol- they have to come up with a solution quickly mm-hmm. because those stakes are getting risen, risen. So they end up doing that thing, demoralizing them. However, that solution causes another thing to start. And then that just happens for the entire show oh, until their moral system is completely thrown out the window. So you're right in the sense that the pilot does that and the rest of the show is just doing that over and over again until he's unrecognizably evil. Yeah. And I, I admit, like, it is always fun when you revisit a show, like, 10 years removed and mm. you're sort of like... Like, I've rewatched the Game of Thrones pilot and I find yep. it's quite clunky. I'm not a big fan of it. I've okay. rewatched. The Walking Dead pilot and been uh, I find that pilot really effective. Mm, I've seen that one um, a few times as well, and I even find that even the first two seasons of Walking Dead are really well paced and and engaging. And I saw a scene on Facebook. The it just popped up the scene where it is it's Sophia in the barn. Yeah, 
that it's scene. The best scene. That I was like, holy, this show used to be incredible. Yeah. Oh my God, what happened? I, I think people <laughs> retrospectively, because this is the thing, when second season came out, everyone was like, oh, it's really slow. There's not a lot happening. Whereas I feel like you're gonna, if anyone revisits that show, they're going to watch those first two seasons and go, wow, this was when the show was at its peak. Yeah. When you're dealing with, like you said, it's these dilemmas, these ethical, yes. moral dilemmas yes. that occur in the, those opening sort of times when they sort of aren't really getting their head around what the walkers and the zombies are, yeah. where, the, where the moral line begins and ends. And now it's, it's completely and utterly numbed to that fact. It became all of this other stuff. And mm. I, one day maybe I'll sit down and finish it and get through it just to yeah. really confirm that I was right about this the whole time and saying those um, first the, the Walking seasons. Dead just got unbearably bad. Yeah. So the the fact that I gave up on it, I gave up on a TV show Zeke. Yeah. That that's that is unheard of. And, <laughs> and they managed it. But it is it is interesting um rewatchability and it's like even um shows like Bojack now that mm. we're a few years removed it would be interesting to revisit and see if the it still holds up. Yeah. In terms of its effectiveness. Um Especially when we're watching shows like Rick and Morty, like Spiral, or just Litton. Yeah. Not even Spiral, just live in this weird sort of like zero gravity, sort of waywardly drifting so that's realm. A weirdly good way to put it. Yeah. Zero gravity. Because it's, it's not like bad, like you said. Like you're kind of floating bad. and you're enjoying that experience, but you're not going anywhere and it's not exciting you it's, in interesting ways. It's kind it's of like just, fast food. It's it just exists. Yeah. It just. <laughs> You, you get a very lukewarm experience out of fast food. You never get a, an incredible fast food experience. Mm. But it's quick and consistent. Unless you're really drunk. Yes, true. <laughs> and you need to true. sober up. But on uh, the TV train, I started a new show. Yeah. In fact, it's only the first episode just dropped earlier today on Damn. Binge, HBO okay. and all of that. Um, this is exciting, Zeke. It's The Last of Us. Yes. First episode dropped, 70-minute episode. Sorry, 70 or 80? It's an hour 20. That's 80 minutes. Awesome. Woo. That's awesome. a movie. It was basically a movie. Well, what I read somewhere is that they just combined the first two episodes. Okay. They were going to do a 10-episode show. They shot it that way, and then I think they just cut down the first two into one big episode. So it's going to be eight? It's going to be, well, nine now. I think 10 down to nine. Okay. Because uh, I think they just merged the two. Um, Yeah, wow. I will say, and, and outwardly direct comparing this to mm. the Uncharted movie, which... I think it's a very fair comparison. They're both coming from quote-unquote PlayStation Studios. They're both based on Naughty Dog video game IPs that are within themselves very similar gameplay and cinematic storytelling. Um, but it, the difference is night and day and just in terms of quality and the not even the level of adaptation, but just what parts they decided to translate. Um, for example, the style and the tone, especially like the dark style and tone of mm. The Last of Us, perfectly translated. Yeah, right. It's not even just the look and the feel or the mannerisms of the characters, Pedro Pascal, Bella Ramsey. Holy shit. They're fantastic. I'm like, okay, this is this is great. I'm on the ride. They're going to be excellent in these two roles. Um, and I know Ashley Johnson and Troy Baker are going to play roles in other episodes doing their own character spins. So that's going to be quite interesting. Um, or even the world building. Like, a lot of that stuff's great. But I think for me, a big part of it, weirdly, was the music. It's the mm. same soundtrack. And I remember specifically when we watched the Uncharted film, we'd be like, this just feels so different because the music, it feels like you're on a mission, not on an mm. adventure. There's no orchestral score. It's like, 
it's like you know just it was it was so wrong and watching this and like the theme music comes in and it's literally just the last of us theme i'm like i can't believe this is real like it's translated perfectly and you know what's funny because perhaps this is finally it this will be the series in which all of the execs the people that have the money to Mm. fund these video game film adaptations sit back and go oh that's that's how you do it Mm. and i i think a, a good example though not directly video games but has clearly shown the shift comes with what Dave Filoni did with the Clone Wars. Okay. Um, and the reason I bring it up is because Star Wars fans are, are vitriolic. They're 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 just <laughs> very, horrible. Very particular. Very yeah. particular. But but I would argue a lot of video game enthusiasts or video game lovers uh, sit in the same sort of category as all we really want is a product that we like we particularly want, and we can use that product as a platform to mm. then create other like then you can explore the creativity and and yeah. I use Filoni as a really good example because you know he created this original product this Lucas inspired Clone Wars series in which he you know provided basically gave Star Wars fans what they wanted and this heavily endorsed Star Wars universe that was in Lucas's original image, it played off the coolest period of time, bridged the two narratives together, the two yeah. prequels and the and the originals. And then on top of that, then he went, okay, I'm going to take that and then I'm going to start creating expanded universe stuff. So it's based mm. off comic books, video games, this sort of stuff. Yeah. And we're going to explore that stuff more. And, and it's like now it's like he, does, he doesn't even have to do it just in the animation realm. Bad Batch is just a very small pool. He's got the Mandalorian, <laughs> Boba Fett. Like, it's like... And this came off the back of someone just giving the fans what they wanted. And right. it's like, you know, they all own these these intellectual properties. And basically, what you, what the best part about the last this Last of a series, if yeah. it does mirror the games or, yeah. or uses the games as the spine and then gives, you know, little branches of creativity mm. or, or individuality... That allows the property to be enjoyable for not only video, well, not only the mass media, but mass consumers, but more particularly gamers, because they can get more, we can explore more character nuances that we couldn't really do in the game, or mm. maybe it was lost in the game because you were playing the game. Absolutely. Throw away, throw away lines might have fallen a little bit flat, but yep. end up getting their time here to be explored. I think we're getting that both ways in The Last of Us show, because you're getting it from the story sense which the way they're doing it i think is fantastic like you yeah. said they're able to expand it in just little areas yeah. so for example and i won't spoil it because you haven't played the last of us but the opening scene a very iconic opening scene about joel you know kind of pre uh post-apocalyptic they're able to spend a little extra time in it so you get mm-hmm. a little extra time in the day-to-day life of the characters in this period of the story so that's quite interesting mm-hmm. but then also when you jump forward in time Instead of just jumping forward to the player, you, you're playing as Joel, so you, everything's from Joel's perspective. They're able to cut around and, and explore little stories that intersect. So, for example, instead of just cutting to Joel wakes up out of bed, we cut to this random character who like stumbles upon the quarantine zone, and then we see them getting tested, and it's like, well, I, even as a game enthusiast, I have no idea who this character is, but I'm understanding in the mm-hmm. story language, they're introducing me to the new world. This is what the, the world has turned into. 
Um, and then they can do that hard cut where, like, we're learning a bit about her and her fears and she's getting tested. Hard cut to she's a dead body in the back of the van. they got to burn. And it's like, oh, she must have been infected. And it's like little beats like that the game can't do because you're right, you're in that almost a first-person mm. mindset, even even if it's a third-person game, of Joel. We have to experience everything through Joel's eyes, but the show doesn't have to do that, Yeah, which is fantastic. But obviously, even in that third-person reality, yeah, it's that subject discourse. Mm. We only see what Joel sees because yes. we're manoeuvring Joel through the world. Mm. And it, obviously, it's a different way of, of telling a story, but what I find interesting, what the best part about it is, is by creating a show that appeases t- to, like, the gamer fans has yep. the authenticity. As a consumer that's never played Last of Us, I can watch this and sort of understand, um, mm. and be able to follow the same story. And it doesn't require me to go buy a PS Five, <laughs> put sync forty hours into a game. No, exactly. Just to understand the same story. No, you're, you're getting the story and it, in condensed in some areas, but a little stretched out and further explored in other areas. But a very very authentic experience, very similar to the game. And yeah. what I think you're going to get out of this, say you watch the show and then you play the game, you're going to play the game and be like, wow, this is the best like movie-to-game adaptation I've ever played. Yeah. <laughs> Usually, you know, when you're a kid, you go watch Spider-Man and then you go home and, and you buy the Spider-Man video game. And yeah. then the, the, you get like random differences there. And it's like, this is going to have that weird inverse effect where you're going to be like, oh, I remember that part in the movie. Now I'm actually playing through it in the game. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, that's how like two like, one-to-one comparison it is in terms of... There's little changes here and there that some are weird, some are interesting. It's fine. I'm not going to get too picky about that. I'm just... Again, I think they've they've adapted the right parts. They grabbed the tone and the story and the characters and did all of that right, which the Uncharted film didn't whatsoever. Yeah. Those characters are unrecognizable. Um, But it... like You know, like I said earlier, with the scene, we it's like, okay, this is a new way to introduce us into the world and here's a new character and... Uh, the the show has time to just do those little detours and, and mm. explore that. So I think that's all fantastic. Um, the other aspect that I think, for better or worse, in terms of translation, is because it is a film or a, a show, they are limited by, you know, schedules and act availability and, and shooting hours and things like that. So I'm noticing a lot more scenes just taking place in broad daylight. Yeah. Whereas, like, I know the game doesn't need to cut as much. There's a certain death scene early on that is like this big one take in the game, which obviously much harder to pull off in a live action setting where you got to get child actors out of there by 10 p.m. and those kind of issues. So I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of that, but it's fine. Like, it's just a different interpretation of that story. Mm. The only other thing I'll mention before we move on, this is a weird thing. I don't know if Binge messed up. Major, like, frame blending. Like, it's like, it's like, they, it's like it was uploaded in the wrong frame rate or shutter speed or something. Oh. It looks really weird. I think that's just a Binge thing. If I rewatch it tomorrow, it'll probably be fixed. Yeah, I don't know. I just noticed that. Very Took me out of it. It looked a little less cinematic. It obviously wasn't made that way. Mm-hmm. This is something wrong with the upload to binge, but yep. that's okay. That's fine. Last of Us, very, very much looking forward to watching the rest of the series over the next eight weeks. There you go. Hmm. See, you watched anything in the last week? Not really. I caught the first <laughs> episode of season three at Bump. On Steam. Oh, very nice. It, did they drop the whole season? I think so. Okay. Cool. I haven't actually got past the first episode, so oh. it's good. I mean, it's it takes place four or five years after um, season two finished. It's sort of the like I said, it's that same sort of like very easygoing popcorns and consumable. Yep. Um, I've been Lou and I've been going through the Inbetweeners. Oh, sweet. Um, I've already seen that show. 
Um, so like me and Kirsty were Breaking Bad. Yeah, Same yeah. Experience. So it's yeah, it's more for her. She's seen bits and bobs, but we're now into season two yep. where she hasn't seen any of it, and it's just a fun. It's just so funny. It, I think in terms of like lightning in a bottle, um, comedy, trying to get that authentic sort of American pie teenage perspective comedy. Yeah, that. You know, American Pie did about 10 years, 10, 15 years earlier, but doing it from a, you know, that British point of view, that, that it's just so funny. Yeah. It's so crude, <laughs> but it's so funny. And to be honest, some of the conversations they have, you sort of remember having as a teenage boy. Right. To an extent. The familiarity. The, yeah. It's that, it's that same sort of thing that American Pie sort of hit the nail on the head, that adolescent perspective. And of course, yeah, it, it does go more extreme mm. than it does in real life. But that's that's theatre, isn't it? That's film. <laughs> um, often stuff is, is exaggerated. exaggerate that stuff, yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's pretty much all I've caught in the last week. It's been a quiet week. Mm, fair um, enough. A lot of stuff going on. A lot of moving parts. There are. We've got a big week ahead of us. We do. Holy crap. Yeah, no, so I guess moving right into career updates. Skin and Blister is still, uh, still chugging along. We are intending to shoot in four days so wild so in fact by the by next week's podcast we would have theoretically shot about 90 90 of the film yeah yeah which is terrifying it's all happening we we only got the schedule sort of locked in yesterday Mm. um now we're just looking at a lot of the logistical stuff so blake's been sourcing all sorts of gears um we've got the van uh rental thing locked in uh, just all of that minute stuff's finally up. You saw we, I had a big thing of mm-hmm. uh, a hose <laughs> that's going to be part of the rain machine. Uh, they had to move into the other room because this room's getting a bit chock-a-block. There were literally ants crawling on my desk. It's like, I don't know what that <laughs> says, but it says i got to get more organized quick. <laughs> it uh, it uh, says uh, exciting times ahead. Yeah, no, it, it's going to be good. I'm just I'm going to take advice that my boss Mal gave me this morning was just breathe and, you know, just relax and make cool-headed decisions and it, it will all happen. Mm. We'll just go. Because I think, I mean, more than any other film ever, I mean, there's a few There's a few obvious reasons, just like in terms of the effort going into it, the money going into it. Um, it's one of those things where, like, everything kind of align perfectly yeah. or it's all going to go horribly wrong. And so far, you know, not going good. It's going so far. It's going well so far, but... It's terrifying. It's very exciting, though. It is. It is. It's. It's. Yeah. I need to. You're right. Sort of compartmentalize yeah. that fear and and that and the excitement and put them all in the correct mm. uh, channeled energy, so to speak. Um, yeah. But hopefully next week we'll have so much more to talk about with that film. Um, Going to be long nights for us, seek. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, yeah. it's it's sort of it's kind of funny on the Sunday night. Yes. It'll be. I have like professional development that morning, and okay. it'll be like so. It'll be like a four-hour sleep for me, but that's okay. <laughs> Kids aren't back yet, so it's it's totally fine. It's not it'll, the end of the world. I'll just sit quietly, like hmm. <laughs> <laughs> get a bit of sleep in the back. Yeah, no, it's cool. Yeah. It, it's gonna be really fun. Yeah. starting school with like the power move of being like, I was on a set two weeks ago. <laughs> I'm ready to go. Um, yeah. Exciting times. We're well, gonna be shooting stuff on it. Yeah. So yeah. you're gonna you're gonna probably get some photographs and videos and so, yes. yeah, yeah, and coordinate make sure everything runs on time. Yep. 
make sure uh do a uh, production managery things. <laughs> She's mostly just being on walkie talkies. Like, is everything going okay? <laughs> we'll be answering back. Are no, it's not. <laughs> are we late? <laughs> are, are we, we running? Are we running? Are we ahead of schedule? Oh no! Of food is up. Not. <laughs> There's hot food. Yes. Yeah. Well, the catering. That's we've had some big. Uh, yeah, I think mean, I think it's a pretty common local small budget film thing. You gotta, you know, it's always you gotta get your girlfriend and your mom to work on the catering Just together. Go pasta, that's the way to do it. <laughs> Just pasta it. Everyone needs full pasta, pasta oh. and noodles. <laughs> that's the way to go. Nah, I'm ve- I'm very confident in our catering. It's gonna be good. I'm sure it'll be amazing. I just, I hope it's one of those sets, you know, where people were like good food, good pay, good vibes, and they like they like the actual film. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> I think it's great. I think for the challenges and the problem solving alone, mm. it's going to be a really uh, fun and engaging time, yeah. I think. And that's all you can really ask for, really. Yeah, so pretty much. Beautiful. Well, <laughs> I guess it's time for us to move into our film of the week. But, Jake, what are we watching? Let's begin the show, Zeke. We're watching The Fablemans. Once there was a way Most of my movies have been a reflection of things that happened to me. Back but in the sense of the Fablemans, it wasn't about metaphor, it was about memory. Once there was a way Sorry I'm late, I picked up Mrs. Fableman. Where should I put her? <laughs> back home, sleep pretty darling, do not cry. And I will sing a lullaby. It's more important than your hobby. Can you stop calling it a hobby? That would have been nothing but disrespect from you. I'm your mother! I don't know what else to do. Can you help me? disappoint you you do what your heart says you have to because you don't know anyone in your life a coming of age story about a young man's discovery of a shattering family secret and an exploration of the power of movies to help us see the truth about each other and ourselves hmm. yeah hmm. sounds good we should go watch it like we should go watch it sounds like a <laughs> film lover's uh, uh film lover's fantasy yeah, it was it was quite fun to watch this, you know, kind of on the cusp of the film we're about to make, but uh, but there's a lot more to this film than just the filmmaking side of it. Yeah, there's, there's I a think whole that's array of themes going on. It's um, it's it is really interesting. Obviously, um, I don't imagine you managed to catch the Spielberg documentary. No, it did not. Um, that is available on fringe uh, on binge. Um, for you to <laughs> Got watch. fringe on the brain. Got fringe on the brain. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's available on binge. If, you, if and I would encourage anyone that watches the movie, you can do it in either order. But yep. um, the documentary essentially gives you basically the factual gist and authenticity and uh, insight into basically the film that you watch. This is the fictional depiction of 
of the non-fictional uh, reality. <laughs> you know, it's, well, it's, it's, kind, it's kind of like the Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and then there was the other Netflix film that was almost like a companion piece. Yeah. I can't... And I'm kicking myself because I don't remember the name of the doco, but they were both really good. Yeah. Um, so very similar, I guess, what you're saying there. Yeah, you, you, get, you get a little bit extra out of it. But obviously the dramatisation of one's life life story or coming of age story is is a different way of consuming the uh, the product or mm. consuming the the well, story telling and that story telling yeah, that story sure. yeah that's absolutely right and i think this is it's also got that meta narrative aspect to it because obviously directing the film about this story is, yeah. is the person it's based off which is an interesting element to the bio like the biographical picture yeah because you talk about the music bios earlier like none of them are really directed by you know say the band members or the musician themselves yes. even though they every now and then have very strong input on what yeah can be told executively in produced often yes, um, yes exactly looking at you bohemian rhapsody <laughs> you sterile boring film Damn. <laughs> I despise Bohemian Rhapsody. It's like the epitome of of like, like that executive produce hand handling of a of a picture. Yeah. Now, yeah. I know there was a lot of stuff that happened on that that set with yeah, changing. We, we don't have to talk about the director of that film either, don't worry. Yeah. Um <laughs> but obviously this one's really interesting because Spielberg's love for a good story mm. almost succeeds uh his criticism of the of the teenage well not his self critique of his character you know the embodiment of Sammy and Sammy's perspective and the perspective narrative of kids seeing divorce and separation mm. and how how a adult relationship works in the context of time yeah um is very interesting um because you know you've got this now late seventy year old man telling this this coming-of-age story that would have occurred 50 years earlier. Yeah. But telling it with a 70-year-old's mind. All the, all the thoughts and reflection that we'd had over those years. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I do have a quote from him specifically about when he was going to make this movie. Uh, the quote is, It's so close to my life and so close to my family. I prefer to make films that are more uh, innocuous. I can't even say the word. Mm. I guess more vague is what he's trying yeah. to say. But a literal story about my family will take a lot of courage. I still think I make personal movies, even if they do look like big commercial popcorn films. I think this quote was from many years before the, he actually made the film. And of course, both yeah. his parents have passed away since. Um, but to your point, Zeke, in terms of making a film that was so specifically about him, mm. I think a lot of people were waiting for a long time. How would he do a film? that? Because you, know, you can watch something like E.T., and a lot of the analogs are there, especially you know with the divorced parents and seeing from the child's perspective. And the ET is basically like a family pet. That you can see all of those aspects uh, as analogs to the real life story. But this is straight up just here is a. It almost feels like a one to one retelling of Spielberg's mm-hmm. childhood, even even to the point where there are some scenes that are just so feel so bizarre out of context. But and I was talking about this with my friend Blake, where he said he loves that there are scenes that just feel so wacko and bizarre in this film because that's what feels personal about it. That's where it's like, yeah, Spielberg, it kind of felt like he wanted to get it off his chest. Yeah. But that's the point. This is a through and through Spielberg film. Yeah. Because there's that aspect there that, because um, obviously you've got this 
a linear narrative that occurs over quite a number of years to the yes. point where I think I think it occur. I mean, it occurs over I think fifteen or sixteen years by mm. the end of it. Um, and obviously, there are big chunks of the story that take place um, over multiple locations. It's 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 mm. a road trip film in in in, yeah. in, a, in a way. <laughs> All because, over the place. Because they moved to, I think, at least three or four different locations over the course of the entire film. And mm. it's interesting because, yeah, there are those, those scenes that feel a little odd. But the reason is they're odd is because they were probably authentic and, and yes. so realistic to the to the life we see. And Crazy Uncle Boris. <laughs> the, yes. the super Christian girlfriend. <laughs> Yeah. A lot of scenes that are like funny, weird, quirky, over the top. But again, it's like, well, that it feels like Spielberg getting off his chest, which is which is funny, but true. As but well. it's but it's interesting because the the simple counter I could have to that that argument is what we're watching is you know, and obviously I think like the the, the Boris visit or the the Christian girlfriend are are like B's and C's stories to. The, the central thread sure and often probably do occur the difference between obviously that and real life is they've been interwoven with the the main thread of the story you yes. know boris's pers- perspectives are very important to the dynamics of, of the per- parents relationship of of how sammy sees the world at the time what's mm. um the and, the, and the cost of chasing his dream and the relationship with his parents yeah so it and, all does tie back exactly yeah and obviously the christian um sort of the christian perspective is is sort of that first love and how that affects him as an auteur and artist mm. and how he sort of sees the the career relation uh, the career love dynamic that occurs and how there needs to be that that balance between pursuing your career and your passion and mm. And love and affection. Obviously, it's a very juvenile relationship, but it's meant to be because he's a yeah, it's you know, a, he's a teenager. Love, yeah. Um, well, for me, that was more specifically, and this was something I kind of had to think more about was that he spends so much of the film embracing his Jewishness because even even though he's a bit of an outcast within the family, that is something that unites them all. And when he moves to this high school in this new, um, I was in New York. No, it was, no, that was in it was California. California, yeah, because they're at the beach, they're at yeah. the beachside. Um, that all of a sudden he's getting sort of made fun of for being Jewish and that was like the counter there so um, it, I think for me the whole like you know the, the girlfriend arc plays more into his outcastness mm-hmm. although he's a bit of you could see him as a bit of a weirdo in this film yeah. and that's where it sort of leaned more for me and I think what it is is it's that sort of pursuit and or the elongated journey I mean in a, in a bottle or in a, in a small two hour picture we, we see the ebbs and flows of creativity, artistic pursuits. It's the switching on and switching off, and how all of the external mm. factors affects one's creativity, their one yep. one's passions, just in general. And that's a really important sort of sort of parallel narrative that's occurring to the family mm. drama, the understanding of divorce and separation, and and what authentic love is. And yep. um, it's so interesting. The narrative that occurs between Dano and Williams, between his parents, and the complex love narrative there—the fact mm. that, um, you know, obviously Paul Dano is his um, Sammy's father is is so stoic and reserved and elicits limited emotion, or 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 or, or at least appears on the surface to do so, but 
his utmost belief that he thinks is he he's still gonna he still loves his his wife or his right you know his, and will push will feel like she'll come back eventually but and this is just a a bump on the road is that belief and that, and that was an authentic thing that happened in Spielberg's life his parents separated and got back together oh okay um, I didn't know that yeah that they got back together they separated and eventually ended up back together in later life in like the 60s in their 60s oh wow okay so and the ending the open endingness there I think it is such an odd final scene not to get too far into the film but sure. it's the you know and and obviously spoilers I mean this film's been out for a little bit now so Spo- go, spoiler go, alert go check everybody. it out Any, yeah um <laughs> Obviously, when Dano ends up with uh, Sammy, it's at the end of the at the end of the film, living in a little apartment, and they have that yep. interaction. It's definitely left a little open ended. Like Dano mm. says, he's hurting, he's emoting, but he still th- loves her, and he still kind of will always love her. And I think that leaves that openness to. William's character returning, much like she did in later life. Yeah, that's fascinating because as someone who didn't know that, I assumed that, you know, they were divorced and that was it. They went on their separate ways. Mitzi. Um, yes, Mitzi. But having not known that, to me, that scene was almost like the final acknowledgement that, you know, she's not coming back and the way that ties to, to Sammy's love for filmmaking where he's like, you know what, go chase that dream. All right, I'm not going to trap you in this universe. If you really hate it that much go and do it. So for me that felt like a very conclusive thing. Yeah. I didn't but I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Yeah. I think it's interesting cuz yeah, I mean this this film could go it has such a great ending that it, it opens mm. up to it could go forever basically, yeah. but Well, if we're talking about the ending, it's it's almost interesting that the film within the realms of the film and like I said, I think the Spielberg context is crucial mm-hmm. to this film, but if you didn't have that the film is very open-ended with the fact that we don't know what happens to Sammy. Does he go on to become a famous filmmaker? Or do, I mean, we obviously know he will. <laughs> How good is it? I, I tell but only you, because of that context. And obviously this, this film does reward the film lovers, the filmmakers. Yes. But it's so cool that see, <laughs> Like, there's little moments. Where I watched this with, with Lucinda. Yes. She would, like, lean over and whisper and be like, Oh, is this like an important film reference? So it's like when he, so when she was in, like when he was in, when Sammy walks into the office and he looks around to be like, "Do you know who office you're in?" And you see all oh, the, the posters. posters, yeah, yeah. And I think the last poster is the only one that actually says, "Yes, it's referenced in the movie." Um, the last poster he looks at is the only one the that references who who's Liberty the director. Right. And halfway through, I was just like, oh, it's John Ford. Like, I knew it was John Ford. Yeah, I, I saw it with a few friends, and the first poster, they were all like, like oh, John my Ford. God, it's John Ford. Yeah. Immediately, but they called so it. it's so cool, yeah. that moment where you're just like, she's like, who is it? And I went, oh, it's John Ford. Yeah. And it's like, you see that It's a cool, post. slow reveal, because you just... your audience is all going to slowly, like, you know, who wants to be a millionaire when everyone's putting their own answers in the phone? Like, it's just slowly building up until you get to the end of that shot. And then David Lynch walks in. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and it was really cool. Fantastic, yeah. Because it's like the yeah you you get rewarded as that as that feeling as that and it's it is really awesome and that interaction that's such a cool scene. Yeah, and that that um, I think that's word for word because I saw a video of Spielberg describing his real life interaction with John Ford, and I I assumed it had to do with the Fablemans, otherwise why would it be on my feed? But I saw that and him describing that real life meeting. 
weeks before I saw the Fablemans, and it is like one to one, the mm. exact same wording. I mean, it's probably how he remembers it, but the fact that he chose to write that scene as a one to one, this is exactly how I remember it playing out. Yeah, uh, and with the horizon comparisons, I think it's it's <laughs> to to merge two sort of coming of age or or childhood tellings. You know, we talked about Apollo ten and a half. Yes. Last week on the show. And I think it's really important that, I mean, it's it's fantastic. And obviously, it's why we regarded it so highly. But that conversation that his parents have at the end of it about how children remember important and iconic events mm. in their own perspective ways. Yes. And I think Spielberg's taken that, obviously, when he's developed it. He's con- I mean, this is his first screenplay credit since Munich which is 2005. Oh, so interesting. 17 years since he had a screenplay. Of course, with Kushner as well. With Kushner, yeah. yeah. His fourth adaptation with him, or fourth yeah, film. Yeah, sounds right, yeah. Um, and it's really interesting because it's, it, you know, these interactions, the Boris scene, I, I the, the, the camp scene when Mitzi's dancing in the, in the headlights, mm. these weirdly vivid... Dreamlike sequence. But sequence, they almost, they, they, they feel like, yeah, an, uh, an older man recounting his youth and these iconic, mm. pivotal coming-of-age moments. Whereas a coming-of-age picture, especially in, in the 21st century or the last, you know, arguably the last 10, 15 years, have been centred around, you know, ever in a post-perks of being a wallflower world, coming-of-age <laughs> dramas have essentially just been a year at high school or a pivotal year in, a, in an adolescent's life, yes. often to do with, things like gender perspective sexual orientation like they've been so focused on those elements right and those stories are still necessary but it's really interesting to watch a coming of age film where we watch predominantly the the teenager but we we watch how a dream is born in yeah. a child and how it ebbs and flows in a in a child and an adolescence development mm. and we don't see a lot of those coming of age films from that perspective in recent memory, like a child pursuing a dream. I mean, yeah, the the first that springs to mind is is Carney Sing Street. Yeah, yeah, that's a love but, for music. But it's such a developed. small period of time. Yes, it's, it's not Street. it's not many many years at all. It's less than one <laughs> school year. So it's interesting seeing such an elongated, a full blown yeah. coming of age story. And even the details of like. First off, the film starts smack bang and Sammy's about to walk into his first movie, which I love that because it's like almost, it's kind of that thing of, you know, we talked about the Breaking Bad pilot. Yeah. Like we don't get a lot of like pre-cancer life for Walt. You kind of jump straight in. It's very similar here where we don't see like, what was Sammy's life before cinema? First off, he's what, like six, seven, eight years old. So it's yeah. like, how much of <laughs> how much are you going to show? But the fact that it's jumping right at that catalyst moment and the fact that he doesn't realize, none of, none of the family realize what is sparking there's something sparked within him mm-hmm. when he sees that train explosion but they don't quite know yet they're like oh well what could it be now he's having these sort of dreams and he wants to get a train for his birthday but no that's not quite it it's the control like controlling what happens to that train i love that sort of development cycle where he didn't immediately recognize that that thing that excited him was filmmaking mm-hmm. he had to kind of go through a few things to, to realize that's that was what was happening yeah it's such an interesting conversation too and um, it's almost a little bit what trying that white noise was trying to tap into, at least in its opening aspect of the oh, of yeah. the film, where they're talking about the, the with the explosion. I forgot. The fascination we, I forgot with, we saw that 
let alone talked about it last week. <laughs> With the, it's true, though. Can't believe I'm citing it again. To be honest, um, <laughs> so quickly. But it's. Yeah. It's so interesting because it's that fascination with 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 destruction and, yes. and and it's obviously that film is almost trying to peel back the onion with what's out. Why do humans fascinate so much over travesty, disaster? <laughs> Imagine and, and... if Sammy had seen the train crash from White North instead. <laughs> yeah, we would never get any Spielberg films. No, <laughs> or he saw Super Eight. <laughs> yeah. It'll be interesting doing a biopic on the... Uh, but instead, it's a person that just makes very mediocre films. Oh, we did see that. That's called The Disaster Artist. Damn. <laughs> um, I mean, hey, that's similar in its own right. We don't. We obviously don't see the moment Tommy Wiseau wanted to be a filmmaker, but that is that Wouldn't is that similar be kind of the, the sequel? <laughs> Not the James... I mean, is James Franco cancelled now? Is he like a no-touching... Uh, I think so. Rule? I, okay. I don't know. He's, he's young, Ch- young Tommy Wiseau conceiving the idea of becoming a you filmmaker. You cast Adam Driver as young Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he cast, um, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, but yeah, no, to be honest, it is really interesting watching such a long story and all of these interesting sort of like, so, you want to call them subplots, but they were just events mm-hmm. that happened in Sammy's life that lead, which have residual impact on his pursuit to become a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I find that Mitzi dancing sequence so interesting because it's these, you know, obviously the, the gaze on Mitzi is different from every onlooker, um, Mm. uh, for different motions, you know, obviously, um, Sammy's capturing the moment from a archival sense and then it transforms into an ethereal filmmaking experience Mm. you have. But then you've got, um, uh, Paul Dano or... Oh, just Sammy's father. What's his name again? Bert. Bert. Bert yeah. And why does it say Sammy's father on the on the cast list? But you're right. It is Bert. You kind of have Bert looking on as like, oh my god, you know, that's my wife and I love her. But then you've also got Seth Rogen, Benny, sort of looking at her with a bit more lust because it's almost like forbidden fruit at that point. And then you got the daughter. I can't remember which daughter who's like, everyone look away, look away. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it's a really good observation you made. Best performance. He's basically just playing. Um, uh, what's his name in Steve Jobs again? <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> I'm a yeah. his name. Um, oh, We just want to see more of this, Seth. We don't want to see you doing it. Oh, to be fair, I mean, Longshot is Steve underrated. Steve Wozniak, that's it. Yeah. yeah. He's, Wozniak. He's just playing Wozniak again. Yeah. <laughs> He's just a tech nerd. Yeah. <laughs> He's great in it, though. He I, is great. I remember this was like the only film he didn't do any, like, improv on the spot. Um, he like, stayed to the script one-to-one. I guess you're working with Spielberg. You don't want to yeah. mess with the script. Yeah. And I think this is one of those moments, right, where it's it's sort of like the Jonah Hill with Scorsese with Wolf right. of Wall Street. The, the the wanting to work with Spielberg and you're, you're someone like Seth Rogen who has, you know, obviously been, you know, your career started with comedy. It's so interesting when you see these comedy actors like the the, the Hills and the Rogans that, yeah, you know, their their breakout films are Pineapple Express and Superbad. <laughs> these and, stoner comedies, and then and, and yeah. then you get the opportunity to work with like a filmmaking master. Yeah, so you're you're yeah. you know you'll do anything to sort of be in that. And for Dano, this is just another. It's such an interesting role for Paul Dano because you know you've you've seen him in in. Pretty much anything you can imagine now. Yeah. Often in more odd roles, though. You know, I mean, even his role in There Will Be Blood, it's it's odd. It's obviously sure, reserved yeah. in its sense, but 
you know, you see those that you know that big blowout scene with with Daniel Day Lewis, and it's such an interesting sort of like role. Whereas this, he is playing arguably his most reserved role. Yeah, well, he's he's playing a very you know um, nuclear family father with you know technical technological ambitions within his own field, but nevertheless, you know a, a father, a stern but loving father. And I don't know if I would quite use the word stoic like you did earlier, mm. um, because and this is what I found the most interesting about that dichotomy between Bert, Mitzi, and Sammy is. It, they very easily could have just made it a clean, you know, she's the artist and she's a supportive mother and he's like, no, you have to go in this field and, and you know, you can't do film and what a waste of time. Like, on the surface, that's what those roles feel like, mm. which in turn you want to lean towards the support of the mother, but then she's the one that's having the emotional affair. So you're almost kind of villainizing her despite the fact that Bert's the one that seems to be crushing his filmmaking dreams. But even deeper than that is that Bert because he is like a I guess like a technologically more um, technological engineer he understands computers and technology which mm. is part of filmmaking a big part of filmmaking is not just the creative side but the technological side so when he's like poking pins in film reels to create gunshot effects Bert's like he's like that's incredible like oh my god you're a real engineer that's so ingenious you know you're like he is so yeah. impressed with his son but still still can't be his job. <laughs> but it's interesting, isn't it? Because still a line there. Because Sammy, almost like, much like a teenager who's caught in the middle of a divorce, there really is no right or wrong or... Because his resentment for Bert at times, Sammy thinks Bert to be weak. Why don't you go after her? Why don't mm. you fight for her? And, yep. and obviously it's more complex than that. But then holding Mitzi account, finding out the affair, having that resentment there, but to then fall back on showing it, having to express it in his own way, sitting in the closet, but then then withholding that information from Bert, like not telling the father, not Mm. telling the rest of the family about the affair, keeping it bottled because he's expressed it to... He only needed to tell his mum he knows about it, Mm. so stop pretending it doesn't exist. Well, that, that's one of the greatest, like, small driving scene question, uh, scene driving question scenes of the whole film, is you have someone like Sammy who, over and over again, we see is, is very res- not reserved, but like he takes a step back and films what's in front of him. He's not overly involved with the family, mm-hmm. so he's the one in the corner filming. And of course, this gives him not I don't want to call it ammo, but this gives him that extra knowledge of he he notices the the affair that's happening, and he's the one that. You know, when they finally have that big family argument about the impending divorce, he's the one sitting sort of in the corner on the stairs and he even sees himself in the mirror filming it, which I don't think that was a scripted moment. I think that came in very last minute. But we see time and time again that he's he's like a passive observer. So you're right, he's, he's, his way of communication is through film. Yeah. So when you get to the scene where he is playing that, you know, video back to the family, this ethereal thing that, that you mentioned... You're sitting in one that oh my god has he edited those clips into this film? Yeah, with with her with her and Benny, oh, just that is oh, brilliant, absolutely brilliant stuff right there. But then leading into the closet scene, something that as a kid that that's the moment they shared their secret because that's the other thing is her supporting his filmmaking. I think was it buying the little film reel so they could watch mm. back the train crash? That was a secret from Bert. So I wonder if there's a correlation there where he's keeping secrets from his dad. Because, you know, Mitzi said, let's keep this our little secret. 
but then that extends into the keeping the affair secret later in life. Yeah. There's, I wonder if there's a correlation there. Yeah, it is really interesting because there is that back and forth. I mean, he, at the end of the story, Sammy ends up with Bert. Yes. And they they support each other and they actually emotionally support each other too. So it's, it's I don't think there is inherently a, a villain or, a, yeah, like you said, it's this beautiful balance that, I, and I truly love it because there was a little subtle scene that occurred early mid point of the film yeah. that elicited an emotional response. I got very like quietly upset, not okay. upset, but like it elicited crying. Like I cried, um, elicited crying. It says so scientific. No, I cried. Elicited crying tears. I cried. Elicited tears. Um, and it was just a subtle scene where it's just Bert teaching Sammy driving and they're having that conversation while driving. And it was mm. this weird moment. And Dano, and it's a testament to how good an actor he is. It's not even him, over, like acting, like it's, it's not. It's <laughs> not a bo- no. And and to be honest, it's like it's not a bombok marriage story where you've got these two actors that are acting out this yeah. divorce where they're giving these big, powerful, and it's a really no, good it, scene. They're quite lived in performances, oh, especially from Fanta. Yeah, and I and to be honest, it's. It's almost, and, and to be honest, even if we go back to Spielberg, Spielberg likes making fun, bombastic characters, like large characters. And there's something about that scene where they're talking that you just get so caught up in that wanting to please the dad feeling in yourself as right, a, as a, yeah. and this might be a, you know, as a, as a, as a bloke that really didn't have a dad around, mm. but it's, it's one of those things that you're sitting there listening to this dynamic and they're talking about sort of the film pursuit and he's he's talking about how much the f- the film's going to cost and how much the camera's yeah. going to cost. $100 for a hobby. And it's yeah, man. it's such a... It hits different, that scene, because, you know, as both filmmakers, I think that that scene hits that little bit more. You've got the yeah. parents being like, oh, this, this is just a hobby. And it's like, oh, yeah. it's a little bit more than that, but... It's. I think what I got caught up with was was how good Dano's performance was, though it wasn't loud or boisterous or or, like said, or, yeah. or overly stereotypical. Yeah, it's such a complex character because he feels authentically like a human. This is just how he communicates, and it makes that final scene when he sees the photo with with Missy um, and Benny together. Missy yeah. and Benny together, and we see probably the most emotion out of him in that scene. Yeah, well, he's heartbroken at that point. It hits. Yeah. It hits hard because you're like this. All he wanted to do was, yeah, have really that nuclear family. Yeah, a wife. He wanted to work hard. He had pa- he had passions himself, but at its core, he wanted to just be Please. someone to provide for his kids. Yeah, and his wife, and make them all happy and live together. And um, his pursuits for passion lost that for a period of time. I yeah. think, but um, yeah, it's a. Uh, it's a great film. Isn't it, it? Yeah, no, it really it speaks to how powerful and and even though I mean it's not broad. It, these are all very specific examples that you're giving, but even for someone like me, who's I've I've very thankfully have never really had that moment where I had to convince my parents that I wanted to make films. They've just been supportive from really the word go. So I've, I've been really lucky in that sense. But then. In the in the very same film, in the Fablemans, I can take away the other aspect of 
Sammy being a bit more of a quiet observer, mm. and there's almost like there's almost like little relationships happening within the family. I mean, I mean, every family has that. You obviously got deeper relationships with your parents versus your siblings, and vice versa. Yeah, and then both parents, uh, irrespectively. So I, that is a universal concept, but it's like that. Even though I really don't have that same experience that that Sammy has, there's still aspects I can take away from him and be like, yeah, wow, this is really powerful storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really good too because it, it's that this film is just so good for so many different reasons and it's not just for the oh you love Spielberg enjoy yeah. enjoy his biopic stuff it sure. really it really captures coming of age from a a really positive and authentically real so yeah, someone recount not in a contemporary sense, like we're experiencing a child's life the whole way, like we so more did with Boyhood. But sure. I, I think what Boyhood does differently is it, it really leans into focusing on family drama and dynamics and how that affects a teenager. Yeah. And I really liked Boyhood. But I, what I really liked about this film is it did that and also focused on career and passion. Mm. Um, I think it actually went that step further yeah. that Boyhood didn't necessarily cover. It focused so much on the dynamic of, of separation and how absent father figures, different father figures affect... Um, affect the, the kid. Affect a adolescent or a child and adolescent upbringing. And mm. I think that... I mean, that film's good for different reasons, but this one I really like. I really do love the the focus on how a passion can be shaped through an upbringing yeah, and family and, dynamic. And, and sorry. sorry, no, you're right. But I was going to say, I think that comes from, like you said earlier, this, the Fableman's is a result of not just Spielberg's childhood, but decades and decades of reflection on that childhood. Yeah, and that's absolutely. something boyhood, I think very intentionally misses. I mean, yes, there's Linklater's voice shining through, but ultimately, you know, Mason as a child, as a child growing up in front of the camera there, there is that sense of the film is about nothing to it in terms of it's obviously about a lot of things and growing up and, and divorce and parents and whatnot, those relationships. But I think the Fableman sort of has that deeper connective tissue where it kind of feels like we're always being funneled to a certain direction and that's Sammy becoming a filmmaker. While Boyhood kind of misses that because for most of the film, young Mason doesn't really know what he wants to be. He's living in the moment. So I think that's the main difference between those two films, and mm-hmm. that's a good thing. I think you want, I think you want Boyhood to be that in the moment film, while Fableman's is like a reflective piece. Yeah, and I mean we've talked about Linklater. He's the director of the here and now. He's yes. the perfect, like you said, film about nothing film. Yes, that's poignant because it's a time and place narrative. It's yeah. and in Boyhood is basically the the extension of the before trilogy in the sense mm-hmm. that those are about singular days in relationships between two people. Whereas yes. boyhood is just a collection of singular days over the course of 12 years mm. um, in which we follow a child's sort of upbringing and the child to adolescent perspective of family world around them, what they want to do with their life. And yeah, basically Mason doesn't know um, what he wants to do. Whereas Sammy does. And that's the big difference. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's. I think it's a good example to bring up, but yeah, um, I think what Spielberg's doing is is showing us this is what happens when someone has a passion, or when a passion is conceived, how it's developed, how it can dissipate mm. or, or take a seat back. 
because of the world around it changing and then how it cultivates when it's nurtured in the right way. Yeah, I, I think this ties back, and I've mentioned this video many, many times. It's Austin McConnell's YouTube video, I Made a Movie, It Stung. And just like the, the trials and, and tribulations of someone trying to make a film and, and just how miserable that whole experience ended up being, but the fact that he ultimately walked away being like, I still want to try again and tell stories. And I think I think this film has elements of that. Like you said, there's big periods of time mm. in the film where Sammy just kind of gives up on filmmaking and, and the, the camera that Benny buys him just sits under a bed for, what, a year, two years? A long extended period of time. But I think that's what this film also highlights is that, that Sammy associates so many of his, the worst moments of his childhood with filmmaking. The fact that he discovered his own mother's affair through his own filmmaking. The fact that he gets dumped on prom while showing his film to a whole class. I think that's a very intentional message that Spielberg's mm-hmm. translate is that there is so much pain and suffering along with the, the love and, and excitement of filmmaking. Absolutely. So I think it goes really together. This leads into a scene I want to ask you about, Zeke. The argument that Sammy has with his bully, I can't remember the bully's name, mm-hmm. but basically, oh, you know what, I can actually pull it up really quickly. It is Logan. Mm-hmm. Logan the bully, who's shown in the Ditch Day beach video Looking good. Very heroically, yes. Mm. Um, and I thought the conversation took place afterwards when Logan very angrily um, approaches Sammy, like, oh, how dare you make me look good? Like, are you trying to make me feel bad for bullying you? Like, what? And he, you know, now he's got the girl, she's fallen in love with him again, and Sammy's kind of like, I don't really know why I did that. What, what's your interpretation of that scene? Oh, I think that's... I think as filmmakers, it's, it's mm. very easy to um, sort of decode that because what i see is that is that is a pure that's sort of sammy's confirmation that filmmaking really is his passion because he is able to kind of separate his emotions of Mm. of the present for the pursuit of a higher art and and chasing that story yeah for chasing the love of the story look i mean we could say i mean we've all been on sets or we've all been in in creative scenarios where we've been surrounded by people or or had people mm. that we could easily shun or deface but we put the pursuit of that art above i mean as it's been years since one of my films but i remember mm. a film we did together where one of the one of the talent was by the end of the shoot quite difficult or getting difficult mm. But it's that pursuit of creating the film and putting the film first and still getting yeah. that film finished that in, you know, retrospectively that, that person still high, you know, still treated the same way in the film that was couldn't like created that, that we didn't go, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to make them look bad now, we're make them look really <laughs> bad. We're going to use every bad take, you know? Um, we no. Yes, every the, bad take. That's every, great. Every bad take, the bloopers, uh, any, all the errors and bloopers, and terrible stuff camera angle, and yeah. even even retrospectively, it's like it's it wasn't just upside down. Wasn't just it wasn't just the talent in front of the camera. It was some of the people behind the camera sure. that you know you and I mutually dislike retrospectively. Mm. But it wasn't like when I was in the editing suite putting that film together, I was like. Well, I'm going to deliberately use I'm make everything to bad. make look really bad, you know. Actually, I've had, I've had this exact quote during, yeah, it was one of my uni assignments. And it was not that I particularly didn't like this person, but 
they were doing such a terrible job that sort of my job was to work around the 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 schlock job that they had done and i remember commenting that i was like it's almost weird because as much as i want this person to fail this assignment because i thought they did a horrible job my job is to make them look good yeah <laughs> and their work look good so that was like this weird conundrum but you're right for the higher art it, i mean that's that's yeah. the purpose of the goal for me I'm- i kind of i i absolutely see that perspective it's not that different from my immediate takeaway which i think was more just that it was almost like a a, a psychological thing that Sammy, he, he maybe doesn't truly even know why. When he says, like, I don't know why, that's that's just, you know, how the story unfolds. I think there's an element of truth where to him, that's the story that needed to be told. You're right, despite his feelings towards that person. Mm. Um, and ultimately, there seem, I mean, they obviously end the scene with them flipping each other off, but like, you know, it's kind of a joke. There's almost like a a bit of an appreciation between them now in that yeah. scene. So that's a nice way to sort of end the arc that was built. Like you said, it kind of feels like a bit of a B or C story with the, the high school stuff that does happen. I know a lot of people aren't huge fans of... It, it is very West Side Story-esque, some of those <laughs> teenage bullies. But hey, a lot of Steven Spielberg teenage bullies were like that, so why not homage it in this indoor yeah. B or film, as you say? And to be honest, I think it's... It's really strange, right? Because as far as I'm concerned, it's like you could easily watch films like American Graffiti and Mm. you look at the characters and the way they interact with each other and and some characters do bully other characters in that film. Yeah. That's just, I think, a product of the time. It's like we're... It's easy for us to go, oh, well, that's not how... That's not how bullies would be in 1972. And it's like, well, how would we know? <laughs> We're not even born for another 25 years. Bullies no, now no, exactly. are authentically different. It's always funny when you see a comical bully now in like a 2022 landscape. Yeah. Like if it's a contemporary high school drama and you've got someone who's pushing them up against the lockers, like, oh, I'm going to beat the crap out of you. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It feels weird in a contemporary setting. Whereas space, if yeah. I watch it in a 1970s film, I'm like, well, either that's the depiction of 1970s cinema just echoing or that was probably what it was like i mean yeah I'm, I'm not dismissing the realisticness of it. i mean i had a friend in high school literally thrown into a trash can yeah <laughs> like this stuff does happen it i'm does sure happen. but i mean i mean because it felt very on the nose like we're gonna make movie bullies here yeah and I, i'm not saying that's a criticism at all i just yeah. i found it funny it's like kind of, i felt like spielberg almost gonna had to do that yeah. Because he almost created some of those tropes himself in his earlier films. And it, I, I, obviously, <laughs> it's it's deliberately trying to contrast his experience in Phoenix. Sure. Where he's in a troupe that really likes him. They're involved in his filmmaking. Yeah. And, like, they're actively like, yeah, let's go make more movies. Mm. And, you know, you have that amazing war sequence with the one shot. How and- many extras does this guy amount? Yeah, I know. Holy shit. <laughs> but you have to... You know what the beauty is? It's... What a legend. What I, what I was, like... Cause I think I think Lou made a similar joke. It's like, well, he's got a lot of friends. I went, yeah, but you've, you've got to remember, it's like it's nineteen, like the late sixties, the early seventies. All these kids had like nothing to do. Yeah, the idea of being so in true. a motion picture. Oh my like, god! With this guy who's like really creative, like he's creating explosions with his with the um, wooden, yeah, with the, the wood, and, and which is something he actually did, and yeah. it's like. The reblocking of all the extras. It's... You know, these kids, this is all they would do, you know, because, like, what else were they going to do with their with their time off, you know, away from school? And and even during school hours, it's like, 
most of the time all kids did. I mean, that's the best part about what Lucas captures with American Graffiti is a lot of these teenagers that have just finished high school, all they do is sit around in their cars and talk. Because yeah, yeah. What else are they, that's all we did in high school, I tell you. What I, <laughs> when the school day finished, I walked down, was it Leech Highway? Yeah. Down to the McDonald's, down to the Hungry Jacks, <laughs> and you just sat around, you ate, ate fast food, and you just chatted. Yeah. Didn't you? I mean, that's pretty much what you do. No, the American Graffiti, that's a good comparison. I like that. I have to say my favorite little filmmaking trick that he does, those are all great, but I have to say the the bird poop ice cream, like, whip pan, that's brilliant. Or I guess mm. it's a whip tilt. Yeah. <laughs> that's absolutely brilliant. Especially because, like, you see him doing it, and, you, and in the moment you're not quite sure what he's doing, and then you watch the film back later, and the different scene, you're like, ah. Oh. It's great. Yeah, that's a great little throwback. Yeah. What a great, what a great film. What was your highlight scene, Jake? Um, I struggled with this. I I didn't write anything down. I don't know. I think, I mean, the, the scene, the f- filmmaking. <laughs> I think, I mean, the scene, the callback when he brings her into the closet and kind of shuts it, so she's alone to see the affair film, like her, the Hannah Baker, this is your tape moment. <laughs> 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 that's just that's just fantastic filmmaking. Um, the very last shot. Obviously, you have the whole John Ford thing happen. Mm. That's a great scene, great performance. It's reinvigorating. But then the fact that it has that little meta moment where, like, the the frame you readjust to put the horizon at the top is just... Or was it at the top or the bottom? I think he I think he whips down, doesn't he? Mm. So it's like you're mostly seeing road and the, the horizon on the top. Yeah, no, just wonderful little moments like that. Yeah. What about you? What's your highlight scene, Zeke? I'll go with... Hmm... I, I do like the, the camping trip. I think the camping trip sequence is really good. But oh, the Mitzi the dancing, dancing yeah. I think the Michelle, uh, what Michelle Williams does in that sequence, it's saying a lot of storytelling. We as the viewer, we were getting that really good, um, you know, sort of objective, subjective discourse or the characters are looking at it differently. But yeah. we as the audience are already starting to catch on that something is amiss. Yeah, yeah. Between the dynamic between. Well, we're definitely whispering each other like, oh, what's going on with Benny here? Yeah. There's, there's definitely Seth Rogen's got that it's good we don't get a Seth Rogen laugh in this I know we've got to get at least one in every episode <laughs> from now on even in films he's not in Yeah, the, their performances are, are phenomenal by yeah. the way especially like I mean Michelle Williams like I said she's almost phrased like a villain in parts of the film because of the affair but mm. her like emotional breakdowns in particular when she just like crawls out of that closet yeah. she's fantastic like, the guilt mm. on her face is just so pronounced and just, like, it drains you emotionally. So, I have to... Before we go... It's, it's out in cinemas. Jake, um, <laughs> how many Oscar noms do you reckon? If you were to guess right now Ooh. how many noms this film's getting. Well, they just they just did the Golden Globes and Critics' Choice Awards. Yes. And I, I haven't memorized them, but I know the favorite ones did really well. It actually won Best Drama at the Golden Globes. I know that for a fact. Um, I don't think I won any of the actor awards. Uh, Oscar nominations. It's a very film-heavy film. It's Spielberg on not quite his last ride, but very much could be. Yeah. You know, this is a great film you could have ended a career on. I'm going to say at least seven. I'll say seven. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll we'll check back when we do the Oscar noms. Yeah, I will good. say... I'll, I'll one better you. I'll go eight. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Eight noms with two wins. What do you think will win? I reckon it'll win, I think, because I reckon Williams will probably get a supporting actress nom. 
and I reckon she could win. Is she supporting or leading? Oh, and she wouldn't. You're right. She wouldn't, it would be Sammy, of course. It'd be LaBelle, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah, LaBelle. He's great. He's got those big. Did they? Did they put like lenses on him? He's got huge eyes. You are. Oh no, she is a best performance in a motion picture for actress. Oh, but I don't think they do. Oh, they do supporting. Okay. Well, there you go. She's up for lead. Well, if she goes up for lead, I'd give her a lead. I'd give her. I'd give her a lead. I can't think of an actress performance in the last year that I've probably enjoyed as much. Yeah, I know Kate Blanchett's killing it in the as Tar, but we have we neither of us have seen that yet. It'll get original screenplay. Would it be original or adapted? They might. They might pull an adapted because it's, you know, Steven Spielberg's life. No, they might. They might. They Surely might. original. Okay, it'll get either or. I sure, reckon. sure. Whatever screenplay it is, it will get that. It'll one. get that. Sure. Okay, I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. If I think it wins anything, um, I mean, there's a chance it just wins best picture, potentially, because you got. I'm looking at the Golden Globe uh, winners now. I mean, uh, everything, everywhere, actually, kind of crushed it in the acting categories. Michelle Yeoh and Kay Han Kwan, or Ki Hai Kwan, excuse me. Um, they both won respectively for their performances and everything everywhere, which is crazy. And you got Colin Farrell for Banshees, um, Austin Butler for Elvis. I guess, of course, I guess. Um, mm. So yeah, I, I don't know. I just feel like it's unfortunate, but I feel like the conversation is not leaning in their way. Um, it's different though. Screenplay Oscars are a different award on. ceremony. They're very there Hollywood are. enthusiasts. Yes, you could. I. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that uh how that goes. For reference, they got five nominations at the Golden Globes. Yeah. And I think zero wins. Yes. Oh no, of course, best drama. Duh, I just said that. But that that's its only win. So that kind of leads credence to what I said, where I think it might win best picture and only best picture, which I don't think historically really ever happened often. No. Usually it wins other things too. Like but... Green Book, didn't Green Book? Oh, uh, I won like. Because Mahershala Ali won for performance. Okay, so. so there's a couple in there. But a little Green Book S, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Coda. Oh, Coda won a performance award as well. Interesting. It'll be yeah. interesting to we'll see get, how this we'll, pans out. We'll look back at it, Zeke. The Fablemans is currently out in cinemas near you. Go watch it, because it's bombing right now. Really? 40 million budget, 17 million return. Yeah, that's... Guys, yeah. come on. What's going on here? Yeah. Isn't that interesting... I, I was shocked to read that. Yeah. But nevertheless, it's true. No worries. Well, speaking of cinemas, Jake, what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? Uh, very light week, Zeke. Got Jonathan Majors, who plays Jesse Brown in Devotion, which is coming to Netflix later this week. The inspirational true story of US Navy fighter pilots risking their lives during the Korean War. It also stars Glenn Powell of Maverick fame. Uh, you've also got the premiere season for that 90s show. Zeke, were you a fan of the 70s show? I've only seen episodes here and there. I okay. I have laughed at it. Um, I would love to sit down and give it a uh, sort of a look in. Hmm. It's got pretty good reviews though. The nineties. Oh really? Yeah, which is a surprise given the how I met. We live in the how I met your father. Exactly. Which is That's world. exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, I think it's because all the cast is back though. Obviously, oh, the the billing is their parents now. Is their that parents it? now. Gotcha. Okay. So I think that that's a really good selling point. That's actually. A sitcom sequel that could actually authentically work because yep. you know you've got the characters 
I think, 10, 15 years removed from the finale of that 70s show. So they could authentically be parents, a lot of them obviously in their late 30s, early 40s. Yeah, if it's been 20 years, well, if that's the thinking there. Yeah, so could have a really interesting run. And obviously, you know, if you look at the cast, a lot of them have still worked together here and there. Sure. Like, and Aston Kutcher's been obviously actively in sitcom, the sitcom world between The Ranch and Two and a Half Men and all that. So I think a lot, a lot of the pieces sort of are there Click. to work really well. Whereas sure. How I Met Your Father, you've got this brand new cast, this very very sterile in the 21st century sitcom cast. Whereas mm. I think that 90s show is really trying to authentically replicate this, that 70s show's humor. Sure. Um, obviously being the nineties, they can still be marginally politically incorrect because of the, because <laughs> of just the time and place setting. And well, I will say, I mean, for us personally, the nineties would, there'll be way more stuff that we like get, yeah, I mean we we're both '97 babies, so we. But there was a lot of '90s things that lingered on enough mm. for us to have sort of imbued it a little bit. It's, Skating culture, for example. I think all the yeah, all the pieces are in place for it to be a fun show. I think cool. it'll oh, be I'm, cool to see a sitcom sequel work for once. I'm optimistic. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not an expert. I'm trying to figure off the top of my head. Sequel sitcoms. Ever, I don't think I've ever been successful. Oh, fair enough. I mean, you got, I guess your prequels and spin-offs, but even then, your rides. Yeah, I can't but more, often of they are trying to just capture lightning in a bottle, or, or yeah. they pick up a property that's been gone for five or six years, like How I Met Your Mother, and give it a just a horrible horror. I can't believe we got a second season, <laughs> and I'm gonna watch it too. And that's the worst that's part. why I got a second season, Zeke. <laughs> well, look, I am I'm very happy to hear. You're you're very positively going to jump on that '90s yeah. show, and because it's Netflix, I'm guessing the whole thing drops in one yeah. go, so you can binge the hell out of that. You also got coming to Disney Plus. Is it Adele Dazim? It's Adele Dazim. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm Indina Menzel for Which Way to the Stage, which is another musical doco mm. thing about her. Very Disneyfied. You know what to expect. Coming to binge this week, you got Top Gun Maverick, which I just mentioned there with Glenn Powell. Very nice. I love um, Glenn Powell. Oh, and and. I guess Tom Cruise. I, guess. I love Glenn Powell. He was in uh, that um, Everybody Wants Some. Oh, there you he, go. He was in. He was probably the funniest character in that. He played Finn, and that was the first time I saw him, and I was like, I really like this actor. Oh, well, there you go. He's he's great in Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. I'm going to see that tomorrow. I got a free screening at a oh telethon. Sick. Excellent. So you, you don't have to wait for it to come to binge. Excellent. Well, you still probably want to get binge anyway because big Pedro Pascal week. Not only, of course, is The Last of Us HBO out now, mm. we talked about it earlier, but the unbearable weight of massive talent Need to watch this movie. is on binge. So there you go. Easy access, Zeke. No, you, you can't escape the binge. Yeah. I really want to watch that movie. I can't believe I want to watch a Nick Cage movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very self-referential Nick Cage movie, so, yeah. so I get it. And finally, coming to cinemas, well, I guess Hoyts is picking up Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. I think it was having a little, a more limited release up until now, uh, so that's exciting. I think I think Pinocchio is going to outrace it in the best animated category, but um, I'm still hearing that it's great. And finally, Babylon releases and sees decadence, depravity, and outrageous excess lead to the rise and fall of several ambitious dreamers in 1920s Hollywood. Lukewarm reviews this one. Well, I think it's just mixed. I think it's just polarizing yeah. more so than anything, which I'm Intriguing. excited about. Is it is it just a post, you know, Me Too with a Wall Street response to this kind of film, or 
God. Yeah. Is it just too... Isn't it bad that critics are so influenced by the world around them? Like, well, yeah, I mean, they kind of have to be in a sense, but I, I get... I mean, film's a film. You have you have to be open. You have to be understanding. If, if a film is, like, just outright insensitive, racist, horrible, mean-spirited, that's going to affect your view. But, like... True. I feel like Babylon... That's I'm sure true. it's a parody. It's a self-critique. That's what I'm. That's the vibe I get. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. I mean, hey, I could be wrong. It could be a horrible movie. For yeah. all I know. I mean, First Man wasn't exactly the greatest thing to come from Damien Chazelle. I I liked it quite a lot, but yeah. I know not everyone did. It was a fine movie. Yeah, exactly. And people are very passive to it. And this feels like a little bit of a turn. I mean, the use of the word dreamers. It was very intentional with the La La Land side of it, but. Um, I'm I'm very excited for this film. I, yeah. I I expect to really enjoy it, but we will see. Anything yeah, can happen, Zeke. Anything could happen. Anything can happen, including more films coming to cinemas this week. I'm kidding. That's not happening. Is that all that's, we got? That's it. You're that's getting it. Babylon and, and shut up. Okay. <laughs> that's all you're getting, Zeke. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show, are we, Jake? No, we're most certainly not. No, we're actually moving into another director's corner. In the next week or so, it is Australia Day, and we've done, mm. occasionally, we've done Australian films on Australia Day. I think we have a pretty good track record. Um, yeah. But we're going to cover an Australian director, but Jake, who's the director and what are we watching? It's very true, Zeke. We're going to talk about George Miller next week and his film, Mad Max. In the not-too-distant future, there will be no civilization. There will be no heroes. <laughs> They say people don't believe in heroes anymore. Well, damn them. You and me, Max. We're going to give them back their heroes. In the not-too-distant future, there will only be madmen and the main force patrol. is a main force officer trying to protect his family and stay alive. Max, a highway patrolman, vanquishes a gangster in a heated battle. However, his underlings decide to seek revenge for the death of the former leader. Ooh, so Zeke, we haven't done George Miller before. Weird, isn't it? Yeah, Mad Max. We haven't Max. even done Fury Road. No, point. no. Um, we've barely touched Mad Max on this podcast, which is a bit shocking, but um, one very of, excited to tackle the first film yeah, again. One of Australia's success stories. Um, I was pretty... It's been a very long time. I did this film in my original 365 challenge, the one I... Oh, okay. My, get 320... Did you watch Fury Road first and then this one? Yeah, I watched Fury Road in the cinema. Um, yes, okay. but obviously the best part about Fury Road is you don't really have to watch any of the other Mad Max films to understand what's going on in that film. True. Yeah. A lot of people, I don't think, actually watched the original three when Fury Road came out. Um, mm. I remember watching it because obviously Max or Tom Hardy's depiction of, Ma- of Max was very much a backseat. Like he said, you know, he had a very poignant quote, which I'm sure you're going to bring up next week on the, on sure. the show. Um, about 
Miller's sort of storytelling style and obviously you don't really have to watch the first three to watch Fury Road because it's about Furiosa. Mm. Um, so it'll be really interesting to revisit this film. I'm going to try and squeeze at least the first two in. Mm. Um, you should definitely watch two because that might actually be my favourite Mad Max film. Wow. I know. And I know he's done a few others. I mean, Happy Feet's probably the go-to. But <laughs> can we watch Happy Feet as well? That's so it's bizarre, isn't it? It's so bizarre. And, 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 and Happy Feet's one of those films you watched as a child and then you watched a couple of times. And then you've never watched again, and you feel like if you ever watch Happy Feet again, it will be like a fever trip. Like I can that, never. The imagine. film is definitely a fever trip, and <laughs> in some aspects. Yes. Before we move on, I guess move on to the end of the show. I have a correction to make, Zeke. Mm. The Fablemans won one other award at the Golden Globes: Best Director, Steven Spielberg. There you go. So maybe director category is another strong contender for the Oscars. Yeah. Just wanted to get that in before we ended the show. No I just noticed that then. Well, <laughs> there you go. Thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with George Miller's Mad Max. Bye.